So beginning our series of Ephesians, you know, we began kind of with an introductory sermon to try to un- understand the whole book. We waded in just a little bit, and now in our, in our sermon series on just the first sentence in the Greek, verses 3 to 14, all one sentence, we've, we've waded in uh, to verses uh, 4 to 6, and now we're going to wade into verses 7 to 10 this morning. But before we, we wade too quickly... Uh, I want to uh, take just a moment and look again at Paul's introduction of himself in verse 1, where he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, this is very important to us. In addition to identifying himself as the author of the letter, Paul is establishing his rightful credentials. Paul is an apostle. It's of critical importance that we understand that Paul writes with apostolic authority. His words to the Ephesians carry the authority and the authenticity of Jesus Christ himself. And he is writing, and we are reading, the very word of God by the will of God. That's what his introduction tells us. Why is this so critical to us? Because Paul is writing and telling us to believe his words. To believe his words about things that are unseen. And the only reason that you and I should believe things that we cannot see is because of the authority of the one who tells us that they are true. So why should we trust Paul when he tells us to believe things and even the most mature Christians haven't seen with their own eyes? We trust Paul because he writes the words of Christ with the authority of God. Jesus himself, think about this, Jesus himself describes the church saying that we stand on the apostles' teaching. Paul's an apostle. Peter, another apostle, is able then to write that the apostles are men chosen by God who were carried along by the Holy Spirit such that they spoke and wrote the words of God. Consider Paul's greeting to his letter in the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. That's an interesting demarcation. You know, the church in Colossae loved Timothy. The church in Colossae respected Timothy. But Timothy is a brother, not an apostle. Timothy did not speak with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as the apostles did. No preacher alive today has apostolic authority. Preachers today have authority only to the degree that what we say is what the apostles have said. And so this word of God is preached not by my authority, but by the apostles' authority which is ultimately Christ's authority and by the will of God. So you and I have to make up our minds. You and I have to make up our minds as to who our rightful authority is. Maybe you're you're a little bit like me in this matter. Because I know in my head that Scripture is my true and rightful and final authority. I know that I've been called to live under the Word of God. But more often than I care to admit, I find myself thinking thoughts that are not according to His authoritative Word. More often than I care to admit, I find that my words and my deeds are not in line with God's authoritative Word. But we have to, we must do more than just say that God's word is my authority. We must live by that authority. We need to live under the word of God. We need to pursue holiness and blamelessness. You see, there are a lot of words out there in the world, aren't there? You're hearing them every day. We are constantly being bombarded with lesser moralities, and lesser callings, bald-faced lies and deceptions that want to be our authority. 
There's a competition going on in our minds and a battle going on in our hearts over whose authority over us. Because we could, we could build our lives on other authorities. We could base our lives on the enticing pleasures of our hedonistic culture. We could do that. A lot of people do. We could base our lives on the worldly argument of our politics and divided society today. A lot of people talk about those things. We could, we could live under the authority of interesting narratives and compelling philosophies and other religions. Or people. We could live under the authority of other people. There are lots of people who want to influence you in every area of your life. They want to make you one of their disciples. So whose disciple are you? Who have you submitted your life to? What is your rightful authority and whose word have you submitted to once and for all? Paul gives the only right response to Scripture with these words. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we subjugate ourselves to the word of God. This is us. Here's the word of God. We're under it. It rests upon us. It presses down upon us. It has authority over us. So that where we go, it goes with us. And we go with it. We devote ourselves, like the church in Acts, to the apostles' teaching. Jesus says that's authority. And having done that, then we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Brothers and sisters, every time we hear the word of God, we must remind ourselves and remind one another that this is the word of God. Listen. Pay attention. Take heed. Take notes. We need each other so that together we can take captive all of the false words, all of the lying arguments, and all of the deceitful philosophies that assault our hearing and our thinking. We must take them captive and then hold them up to the light of God's word, and if they are found wanting, we must destroy them. Dash them to bits. We need to be like Ezra. Do you remember our study in Ezra not too long ago? You remember Ezra in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his rules in Israel. Study the word so that it's in us. Live out that word and tell others about it. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge from Ezra. And, and you need to say amen to that in your hearts. Please don't just casually nod and say, yeah, it's another Sunday. It's the word of God. I get it. This is the word of God, and we must believe that. Because it is telling us true things that we can't see with our eyes. It's going to tell us things that others say are not true. But because it's the word of God, we can believe that what Paul has written is real even if unseen, and is true because it has come to us by the very will of God. Maybe this quote I ran across from G.I. Packer will help us to understand God's word just a little bit. Here's what he says of Scripture. God the Father is the giver of Holy Scripture. God the Son is the theme of Holy Scripture. And God the Spirit is the author, authenticator, and interpreter of Holy Scripture. And right here in the very first sentence in Ephesians, in verses 3 to 14, 
our triune God meets with us right here in this word. So follow along as I read. I'll read in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 14. We'll be focusing on verses 7 to 10 this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you want to take along your outline to the sermon, which is in your your bulletin, you'll see this theme. Faithful saints are called to praise Jesus for redeeming us through his blood by the grace of God. All things will one day be summed up or united in Christ according to the wise plan of God. And so I've broken the sermon down into into three large categories. The first is in Christ alone. We're beginning at Roman numeral one. In him we have redemption through his blood, verse seven, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's an interesting concept, redemption. Uh, You're probably a little bit familiar with it. It's to buy something back. Something is in someone else's possession and you, you need to buy it back. Like when you take your laundry and you drop it off at the dry cleaners and you want it back, they give you a redemption ticket so that you can go back and get it, that's pretty easy. There's, a, there's probably a deeper redemption that's a release of a debt. When there's a debt that's owed, maybe it's a big debt, it has to be paid. And when that's paid, you're released from that debt, you're redeemed from that debt. Uh, you might think in terms of captivity, certainly in, in the exile, captivity, if, you're, if somebody, uh, somebody takes you hostage uh, in a foreign land and they, they send a they send America a letter and say, hey, pay us money and we'll, we'll let go of your citizen. You need to be redeemed, a ransom payment's made to, to get you back. So it's this idea to buy back, this idea of being redeemed. It's a, it's a, it's a targeted and exerted effort. Redemption doesn't happen by accident or happenstance. It's something that's done by the Redeemer. For the Jews, redemption was pictured best in the Exodus, in which God raised up a Redeemer in Moses. And here's what he told Moses. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. So God himself redeemed his chosen people, Israel, by his power, his mighty and outstretched arm. Jesus applied the concept of redemption to himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus told his disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, or to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom for many. For many. So Christ Himself redeems His chosen people by the power of His redeeming blood. In Christ, God has brought about a second Exodus. Christ has purchased us from the curse of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, picturing 
his crucifixion on a wooden cross. We've been bought with a price. We learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called a bondservant of Christ, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And we were bought with the, with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verse 14, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. He did this by taking our place, by receiving the condemnation and punishment that was due us for our transgressions. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be no sin, that is, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, referring to Isaiah chapter 53. He gave himself as a ransom payment. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, the slavery from which God saved us was our bondage to our own sin. And so Paul says that Jesus' redeeming blood bought the forgiveness of our trespasses. Which is an interesting word choice. Paul could have said sin. You know, he usually does. Sin is our condition. Sins are our actions. The word trespasses more directly highlights that someone has been trespassed against. Puts, a, puts another face in the picture. Paul's word choice highlights that we have personally transgressed. We have personally offended this God and his Christ. And so we are in great need of redemption. Don't miss this. Dear friend, you are in need of redemption if you are not in Christ. God's justice looks at your sin and says, that's a trespass and there's a penalty. And the penalty was established from even before there were trespasses and it's death. The wages of our sin, what we earn by our sinful living is death. And yet, he calls some to be holy and blameless in him. So how do you get from there to there? Dear friend, you need a redeemer. And there is one. There is one. Jesus, the Son of God, came. And he lived the righteous life that you and I could not. And he died on the cross and something unseen happened on the cross. There was an unseen spiritual transaction that took place. The sins of people were imputed to, given to Christ. He didn't sin, but he got their sins anyway in this unseen spiritual transaction. And when Christ died, when Christ took the penalty for those sins upon himself in his own death, that debt was paid for. Sounds like redemption. Sounds like a ransom for all of those whose sins were imputed to him. And so to them, the other part of the spiritual transaction is that Christ imputed his perfect righteousness to them. So that the filthiest of sinners is now seen as righteous as Christ in the eyes of God, who is our judge. You need a redeemer and there is one. And you can have him. You can have him. You need to believe in what's unseen, but is true. It's true, and it's real, and it's eternal. It's this good news of Christ's redemption. And you can have it by, by repenting, turning from your 
your sins and turning to Christ and his righteousness. Believing, trusting in something that's unseen but that has been told to you by the very authority of God. Here it is. Have it. Forgiveness of sins and a life everlasting which begins now in this life and goes on to the next. Just believe. Remember, this entire long, run-on sentence, verses 3 to 14, is oriented to worship and praise. Remember? That's how it begins. Blessed be the God. Blessed be the God. Praise Him. Praise our God and His Christ. Praise God because in Christ we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. But there's more that comes through the redemption of our trespasses. Elsewhere, in this same letter, Paul writes, look down at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That means we have been freed from our former captors. We have been freed from our constant enemies of sin, death, and the devil. That's what Paul describes. Look look over at chapter 4, verse 18. Paul writes, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, Christ redeeming us redeems us from darkness and a hard heart against God. Look down just a little further to verse 30 of the same chapter, verse 4, chapter 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our redemption exempts us from condemnation and the future day of judgment. Christians exempt. There is now no condemnation for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this by the blood of Christ shed for us. And what's the source of this redemption? It's grace. Paul says it's grace. It's all according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of of God's grace. He says it's grace that's been lavished on us. We experience God's grace perhaps most particularly in his redemption of us in Christ's precious blood. For us to transgress a holy God makes our sins particularly wretched. I mean, if you're an ugly, horrible person and mean to an ugly, horrible person, eh. But if you're a mean and ugly, horrible person to, to the perfect, loving creating, giving, sovereign God. That's a transgression. For us to transgress a holy God makes our sins particularly wretched. For that same God, too, of his own choice, his own will, his own good pleasure, his own love, to bring about our redemption through the blood of his only beloved Son is particularly gracious. If you're not quite sure what this word grace means for our purposes this morning, let me define it this way. Grace is God's free choice to show unmerited favor towards his enemies. Not neutral people, but his enemies. God's saving grace then, by nature, can't be earned. It can't be merited. It can only be received. Because grace is something that's given. And saving grace is only given by God. God's grace is so rich and so abundant that Paul says God has lavished it on us. That's kind of a funny word to find in the Bible, isn't it? Just lavished it on us. What a word. What a choice of words Paul made here. Think about this just for a second. Just use your sanctified imagination just for a minute. Paul is sitting in his stinking prison cell in Rome writing this letter. And he's thinking of the best word that he can use 
here to describe God's grace? Hmm. Adequate. It's a good word. But no. Sufficient. That's, that's, that's a true description. But no. Sitting in chains, perhaps even out loud, he finally says, lavished. Lavished. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a lavish flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. In the Old Testament, the word lavish was used to describe the riches of King Solomon, whose wealth exceeded that of all the kings in the earth. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23. It's not just that God has grace and that he gives grace, It's that he has riches upon riches upon riches of grace. And he gives it so overabundantly, so overwhelmingly, so overflowingly that he lavishes it upon his children. Think for a minute. What in your life would you describe as lavish? What do you good, plain-spoken folk here this morning have that is lavish? How many times in your life have you been treated lavishly? Of course, lavish could be just a roof over your head and shoes on your feet and food to eat. Remember our need for redemption and the forgiveness of our transgressions? Do you remember our need for a redeemer? Remember how we are so justly responsible for our sins against God. Remember how we are so undeniably deserving of his just condemnation and wrath. That's true. And he gives grace. He gives us amazing grace. He pours out his grace upon us and it never stops flowing. God, your Father, lavishes his grace on you. Is that your plain experience this morning? Can you say yes, that's true? Or are you a little unsure of God's grace towards you this morning? Because if you are, Paul would remind you in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Now the law came to increase trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See the picture. Why did grace abound all the more? Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin has a word. Grace has the final word. The more you see your trespasses, Paul says, the more you see God's grace. It doesn't mean sin more, it means see more. The deeper your understanding of your trespasses against the holy God, the greater your understanding of God's grace. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has lavished his grace upon you, dear faithful faithful saint. And so Paul goes on to describe how God has lavished his grace upon us in a way that we might not normally realize. Read along, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. God's will is a mystery to us, isn't it? 
We do not know the mind of God unless he reveals it to us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's invisible to us. And there's, that's what God is doing here through the Apostle Paul. He's revealing his will. Paul says there's, there's something that was hidden. It's not hidden anymore. It's not a mystery we have to figure out. The mystery's being told to us. Here it is. Here's what was a mystery. Paul's revealing unseen things to us. Unseen and real. And we're to believe them. First, Paul describes the manner in which God reveals his will to us. And he says it's a gracious act of God to reveal his will to us. This is, this is part of that grace lavishing that God does to reveal his thoughts, his will, his pleasing purposes to us. Because he wants us to know something. God is exercising his wisdom, Paul says, and his insight in revealing of his will to us. There are things we do not know, the mystery of God's will, that God wants us to know. It's not the totality of his will. That would be like a fire hose that would crush us. It's a specific thing that he's chosen to reveal. At some points he reveals that, oh, by the way, not only the Jews are going to be my people, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Gentiles will be my people. Other times he says, you know what the, you know what the revelation of my will is? It's Christ himself, this one who has came. And here it's the plan of God. Here, in these verses, the part of his will that God is revealing is his unfolding plan of salvation. So in his wisdom and insight, God has decided to be gracious to us in this particular way, which is to give us a little of his wisdom and insight. Wisdom's a good thing. In James, we learn to ask God for wisdom because he gives it. Do you remember that? That wasn't too long ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James 1, verse 5. What kinds of things do you and I tend to ask God for wisdom for? What insights from the mind of God do we think would help us in life? Such that we ask for wisdom. Maybe it's just me, but I, I probably ask for wisdom about pretty trivial things. Pretty short-term, not that important things. But, God loves to hear the prayers of his children, and I have asked for wisdom for daily things. I've asked for wisdom for daily things. Stuff to help us cope, stuff to help us through. What has God chosen to reveal to us? here in Ephesians? And does it help us to cope and help us to get through? Because that's kind of the stuff that we normally ask for wisdom for. What is helpful for us to have God to pull back the curtain and show us a little of his plan of salvation? What's helpful to us about that? How is it gracious for God to show us that particular unseen thing? Specifically, in the verses that follow, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. I have three ideas why that's helpful. First, the people in Ephesus were steeped in Roman mythology. Not just individuals, but the whole culture. They believed in many gods all around them. And they had a great queen god with a huge temple and a huge statue of her just outside the city. Their economy revolved around this, making little, little statues of Artemis, Diana, little statues to sell to people. They put on the dashboard of their chariots and you know, their nightstand beside the bed. Took up their entire living Government, economy, worship of this pagan goddess. And they were fearful of these gods and goddesses. They were fearful. And this was the mindset of Gentiles who became Christians and came into the church. We live in a superstitious culture with all of these malevolent, capricious gods acting all around us. 
And Paul is convincing them that Christianity, well, we'll say it this way. They, they were steeped in Roman theology. Paul was telling them that Christianity is a true myth. I'm talking to you about things unseen. I'm talking to you about the heavenly places. I'm talking to you about the spirit realm and the authorities and dominions that are there. And what I'm telling you is that here's what's real. The one true and living God has a plan. And it is taking place right now in the world all around you. Don't worry about their plans, which you don't know. I'm telling you God's plan, which he has revealed to us. Yes, there are real spiritual forces at work all around us, not just then in Ephesus, here today. But those pagan gods don't run it. In fact, they're powerless against our God. There's no reason to fear them. We know this because God has a plan. He's revealed the mystery to us. He's got a blueprint for all of creation from eternity past to eternity future. That's what he's hinting at back in verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God was in charge back then. That we should be holy and blameless before him, looking into eternity future with the day that Jesus comes back and we're with him. I mean, even in saying those things, Paul was saying, look at this God's reach. It's expansive. He's covering everything, end to end. God is making everything new in Christ. That's his plan. And he'll do it by bringing us from death to life in Christ. And so now, what we understand is that Jesus is the defining reality in our lives. How do we understand what's going on around us? By looking through Jesus. How do we understand what's supposed to take place in my life? Why am I here? Where am I going? Look at Jesus. He's the defining reality that we now live in. He's the defining reality for the whole universe. You see, here's good news. God is not making you better. He doesn't want to better you. God is transforming his church into the image of Christ. That's what he's doing. God is lavishing grace on us in wisdom and insight so that we would know his unseen plan and take confidence that he is the sovereign God in charge of all things. And that he's making all things new in Christ who happens to be our redeemer. That's the first thing. That we see 2D in a 3D world. And God's showing us that 3D world. He's sharpening our spiritual sensitivity and our understanding that he's the one who's in charge. Here's the second thing. I had said in the introduction to Ephesians that there was no urgent emergency that Paul was writing to address in the church like other letters, and that's true. But the church does have its particular challenges in daily life, and this is one of them. Because of their cultural surroundings, the Ephesian church feels fearful and powerless. They gather for church on the Lord's Day morning, and they look outside and they go, that's a scary place. I'm kind of afraid of it. And frankly, I feel a little powerless. I think we too have that sense of fear and powerlessness when we look out the windows at our culture, at our society. Do you feel that way? The culture around us seems hostile to the gospel. The society around us, even our neighbors, seems to be in opposition to even the basic biblical values. And so they're against Christianity itself. You can feel that way. Paul is writing to reveal to us the true spiritual reality that applies to us. And that is, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are chosen to be in Christ. We are redeemed 
in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. And now we are wiser and more insightful in the plan and purposes of God in Christ. Lavishing grace. We're wiser and more insightful now that God has given us the plan so that we don't have to be afraid. We can tell what's going on and we know whose side we're on. And we know that we're safe and secure in Christ. That's the second thing. Our reality is that we are in Christ who is the glorious centerpiece of God's entire plan for all of eternity. That's where we are. In him and he's at the center. And here's one more thing. The church has a role to play in God's plan. Let me ask you this question. Do you look at your church by faith or by sight? Hmm. Not sure I've ever been asked to look at the church by faith instead of by sight before. When you look at the church by sight, what do you see? Building, people, children's ministry. You see preferences and expectations, some things you like, some things you think could be improved. When you look at the church by faith, what do you see? When you put on the 3D lenses of faith and look at the church, what do you see? You see a mystery revealed. You see that the foundation of the church is God himself. Chosen by the Father. Redeemed in the Son. Indwelled by the Spirit. That's the church. That's the church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against. Who's on offense? The church. Wielding what? The gospel sword of the Holy Spirit. I, I recently heard someone describe the church this way. Uh, he said it was a line from an Emily Dickinson poem. I haven't read the poem, but he applied this line to the church. He said the church is, here's the, here's the quote, the truth that dazzles slowly. The truth that dazzles slowly. God wants us to see what is unseen. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is wrapped up in his eternal plan of God in Christ. God's lavish grace gets final say. God, for no other reason than his good pleasure, saves sinners and lavishes us with his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does all of this for his glory alone. Christ alone. Grace alone, God's glory alone. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. The mystery now revealed is God's plan of salvation, which is an unfolding plan. It serves his purposes and it serves his good pleasure. That same Greek word can be translated purpose or good pleasure, either one. So if you see purpose or will, you might also see his good pleasure. They kind of work together. God's good pleasure determines his purpose and his purpose results in his good pleasure. He's God. And God the Father did not contrive his plan in isolation. The Father and the Son were in union prior to creation, still are. Christ the Son participated in all things with the Father, including God's relationship with man and how to overcome our sin and the resulting reward of a glorious outcome. 
Before he made the heavens and the earth, God developed a long-range plan for humanity, taking into account our fall and our sin and our need for redemption. You know, the, the Greek word, I don't normally do this, but the Greek word for God's plan is very insightful because we can hear it. We can hear it. Uh, it's oikonomia. The, the root word is oikon or oikos, depending on, on, on verb form. The, the root word oikos means house. So you picture a house. The word oikonomos means household manager. The house manager. And so the word oikonomia means the household plan. The household manager's plan. There's a house, there's a manager, he has a plan for managing his household. Paul presents God as a manager over his household. And God has a plan for his household, which encompasses everything in heaven and on earth. It's a big household, it's all his. You know, Jesus gave five different parables in which he portrayed God as a, a manager over his household. We don't have time to go into it now, but it's common thinking. It's recognizable thinking, and this is critical. Timing is critical. And understanding the times of God's old and unfolding plan of redemption are critical to the church's understanding of our role in them. God's plan is a plan, Paul writes, for the fullness of time. For the fullness of time. When is that? When is the fullness of time? Well, God began unfolding this plan of salvation with the coming of Christ. With his new covenant. That's the fullness of time. Paul says a similar thing in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see a consistency in, in God's theme and purpose there? And we, Christ's church, still live in the fullness of times. The fullness of times that Christ inaugurated at his coming will be completed upon the day of redemption, full, final redemption. In, ch in chapter four, just a little later in, Paul in verse 30, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. End of the fullness of times. And then eternity. And what'll happen on that day? What's God's end game? For all things to be united in Christ. Listen one more time. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. One day, the problem of sin will be dealt with finally and decisively and by God. He will act once and for all to bring under control all rebellious creation, both in and through Christ. All who resist God, both on earth and in heaven, will be subjugated and no longer allowed to oppose or defy God ever again. That's the power and authority that's coming. That's the power and authority that we live under now. Let's look at this phrase, to unite all things in Christ. The word translated to unite means to gather up or to sum up all things under one thing. That's what he's doing. The word pictures an author who writes uh, to summarize his main point. All of the subpoints are gathered together under a heading, and that heading is the main point of everything else that is written. Christ is that summary point. Christ is the main point of the entirety of God's plan. Everything is summed up in him and through him. Now, don't misread this to think that unbelievers will go to heaven. That's not intended. Only the redeemed are in Christ. Paul is writing about the climax of all of history. When this thing all comes crashing to an end, everything, seen and unseen, will be gathered together under the headship of Jesus Christ, period, full stop. The headship of Christ over all things is it's such a prominent theme throughout the letter that it's likely Paul intended this picture of Jesus as the head of the body in his church. In chapter 1, verse 22, Paul writes, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. 
chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. I mean, the picture's clear. God created and ordered the world. Man rebelled, bringing chaos and not to mention death to the world. There was also a rebellion in the heavenly places, in the realms of angels and spirit beings. But Christ is now the head of his church. And Christ has begun to exercise his headship over powers in the heavenly places. And there is coming a time when all of creation will have to submit to his authority as sovereign Lord. We're in the process of the plan. But there is a plan. It had a sure beginning. It has a sure and certain end. Paul has written so that we would put on 3D glasses and see what is unseen. So that we would be alert to the spiritual things going on around us. And recognize that our God has a plan, that he's in charge. And that we would be spiritually sensitive to his call for us to be holy and blameless before him. That's our part to play. Paul's written to put 3D glasses on us so that we would not be afraid of the darkness anymore. We're redeemed from the darkness. We're in Christ. He has redeemed us by his blood and he is above all earthly powers and authorities. And now we live by the power of Christ in us. And so that we would see the church by faith. That we are a body of Christ here on earth, here in the fullness of time. That the church is the truth that dazzles slowly. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. For all of God's grace, which he has lavished on us in Christ, we are called to praise Christ, our Redeemer. Let me close with this picture of our hope and, and this glory our Redeemer's glory that Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ our Redeemer. We thank you for his saving and cleansing blood. We thank you that you called us to be in Christ, chose us to be your people, holy and blameless before you. And Father, we thank you for this grace, your grace, your favor, your rich, rich favor which you pour out on us every moment of our lives so lavishly. Help us to see it. Strengthen us by it. Use us for Christ and his kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.